Today's reading comes from Job 8, 9, and 10. Hear God's word. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, How long will you say these things? And the words of your mouth be a great wind. Does God pervert justice? Or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, Surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. And though your beginning was small, your latter days will be very great. For inquire, please, of bygone ages. Consider what the fathers have searched out. For we are but of yesterday and know nothing. For our days on earth are a shadow. Will they not teach you and tell you and utter words out of their understanding? Behold, God will not reject a blameless man, nor take the hand of evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame, and the tent of the wicked will be no more. Then Job answered and said, Truly I know that it is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him in a thousand times. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? God will not turn back his anger. Beneath him him bowed the helpers of Rahab. How then can I answer, choosing my words with him? Though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. If I summoned him and he answered me, I would not believe that it was that he was listening to my voice, for he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not let me get my breath, but fills me with bitterness. If it is a contest of strength, behold, he is mighty. If it is a matter of justice, who can summon him? Though I am in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, he would prove me perverse. I am blameless. I regard not myself. I loathe my life. It is all one. Therefore, I say, he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hands of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. If it is not he, then who is it? For he is not a man, as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on both of us. Let him take his rod away from me, and let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him, for I am not so in myself. I loathe my life. I will give free utterance to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend against me. Does it seem good to you to oppress, to despise the work of your hands and favor the designs of the wicked? Have you eyes of flesh? Do you see as man sees? Are your days as the days of man, or your years as a man's years? 
that you seek out my iniquity and search for my sin, although you know that I am not guilty, and there is none to deliver out of your hand. If I am guilty, woe to me. If I am in the right, I cannot lift up my head, for I am filled with disgrace, and look on my affliction. And were my head lifted up, you would hunt me like a lion, and again work wonders against me. You renew your wickedness against me and incense your vexation toward me. You bring fresh troops against me. Why did you bring me out from the womb? Would that I have died before any eye had seen me, and were as though I had not been, carried from the womb to the grave. Are not my days few? Then cease and leave me alone, that I may find a little cheer before I go, and I shall not return to the land of darkness and deep shadow, the land of gloom like thick darkness, like deep shadow without any order, where light is as thick as darkness. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A couple weeks ago, I had a conversation with somebody after the first service, and they said, uh, I want to understand the book of Job. But at the same time, it's just so heavy. Perhaps you feel that ambivalence every time we just simply read a few chapters each week. You feel the heaviness of it and the weight. There's a part of you that wants to know more and wants to follow this trail that it leads us down to see answers, but then also at the same time, there's a part of us that just doesn't want to. And I think it's easy for us to ignore the book of Job. We like want to take the Bible as though it's a dinner plate of food, and we want to pick out the parts that we like and then push the parts away that we don't. But in reality, that's what children do. And so we have to understand that Job is good for us, even though sometimes it's hard to swallow. And I think it's easy to push it to the side because it, I think it reminds us that our lives are incredibly fragile. And tragedy could strike at any moment. I also think it's hard because it asks the questions that we just don't want to wrestle with. They're hard answers. Why would a good God allow suffering to happen? We've said in short that Job is the invitation into the deep end of our existence. But why? Sometimes the shallow end feels really good. And I don't want to wait out there where it takes so much more work and effort. Why go out into the deep end? Well, you know, I realized this week if there's ever going to be a sermon series that will actually make you desire to be, instead be in a sermon series on uh, giving and tithing, it is the book of Job. We don't really like it very much, and I think part of it is it's still good for us. It's still good for us to wade out into that deep end, I think, for a couple of reasons. Money reasons, but let's just highlight two real fast. I think it reminds us of how the world really is. I think we want to take Job and we want to take uh, his story and make it exceptional. We want to make it the outlier of what happens in our world. And the reality is, I think the opposite is true, that the story of Job and his suffering is far more close to more people in this world than we actually understand and recognize. Go to India, and you will see suffering on a scale that is beyond comprehension, truly beyond comprehension. You're only a plane ticket away from Job's story. Or think about the... 40,000 refugees that just live a few miles down the street. You can go and talk to them. Set up a meeting with For the Nation's Refugee Outreach, and you can listen to their stories about how all of their family was kidnapped by ISIS and killed after they paid the ransom. And they start this new life in this new country with nobody, all alone. 
You're only a 20-minute drive from the story of Job. The reality is, is that Job's situation and his story is far closer to the norm of this world than we want to realize and admit. And I think secondly and more importantly, I think um, the story of Job encourages, encourages us to not offer simplistic answers to complex problems. It encourages us to not offer simple solutions to problems that are deep and profound. Consider Thursday night, the tragedy that struck our own city. What happens the next day when you wake up on Friday is you see everyone on social media offering their commentary on what happened and what should be fixed. Political statements immediately without ever even knowing the names of either one of the officers. We offer quick, simple solutions to complex problems. And I would say that we have to be careful with and understand the story of Job because Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar would have loved social media. Because it's a microphone to as many people as possible to offer simple solutions when we don't understand the problem and the extent of it. Or to want to spin it for our own purposes and make a social statement or a political statement or a hobby horse. What could be more necessary for us as a country than to have a story that reminds us of the deep brokenness and suffering that exists and to appreciate it and to not offer the simple solutions that just make the problem worse? Consider our Savior. And why, why is that? Part of it is because our culture presents a dichotomy. Just for a second, for the sake of argument. It presents a dichotomy where you're on one side or the other. And just in this specific instance, if you support officers, then you don't like black people. If you support black people and want equal rights, then, you don't, uh, then you're anti-authoritarian and you don't uh, respect police officers. Is that not the constant story that we hear? And is that not constantly how we engage and we, we see this, uh, even Christians engaging in that story with that dichotomy, one side or the other? They did the same thing to Jesus. They would say, Jesus, is this man born blind because of his sin or because of his parents? Jesus says, neither. Those are ridiculous questions. Or they also say, Jesus, do we we pay taxes to Caesar or do we not pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus says, why don't you all reach in your pocket and pull out that coin that has Caesar's resemblance on it? Jesus doesn't operate on this simple dichotomous view of the world and neither should we. We should recognize that sin, especially brokenness that has plagued our country since its inception, will not be solved in a day. And what it really needs is mourning. That we as Christians should actually endeavor to understand the depth and brokenness of the situation before we speak. That instead of wanting to do a post, we drop to our knees and pray. The greatest restoration projects in the scriptures begin with profound mourning. Remember the story of Nehemiah where he returns and he mourns the situation and he takes time and care to preciously go over the damage and destruction of Jerusalem. And then he goes and he talks and he gathers. Then you have Jesus who weeps over Jerusalem and pleads over its sin and mourns before he rebuilds or he builds the new Jerusalem. And you have uh, Joseph and Nicodemus taking care of Jesus' dead body and mourning over it before the resurrection. Do not underestimate the power of mourning. 
Don't underestimate the power of what it does when we actually willingly empathize with another. Because that's what Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar could never do. And they miss Bildad, or they miss Job, and they miss God. Let us be reminded that we walk a narrow road if we are going to follow our Savior. And let us be those who would mourn first and not have simple answers for complex problems. So as we move forward in Job today, what do we know? What do we know about this story? The first is Job's suffering was God's idea. Satan comes into heaven and offers uh, his, or says that he's been walking to and fro on the earth. And then God out of nowhere says, well, have you considered my servant Job? Job's suffering was God's idea. But Job's suffering is not because he's unrighteous. God himself declares Job as righteous and upright. Job is not suffering because he's unrighteous. He's suffering because he precisely is righteous. That's the tension of the story that we're in. And so this morning as we move forward and listen to Bildad's response, I want two questions to be on your mind. How does Bildad and how does Job envision how we approach God? And then why? Why do they have that view and for what purpose? How do they envision approaching God and why? So if we'll begin, we'll begin in Job 8, and we'll look at verses 2 through 4 to start off with Bildad. Last week, Eliphaz broke the silence, and Job responded, and this week, Bildad takes his turn. How long will, these thing, how long will you say these things, and the words of your mouth be a great wind? Does God pervert justice, or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. So, verse 2. How long will you say these things in the words of your mouth be a great wind? In short, what Bildad is saying is, Job, how long are you going to be blowing hot air? Wow. Bildad enters the conversation with an astonishing self-assurance and a profound coldness. And it doesn't really take uh, much to understand that Bildad is no friend of Job. His silence for those seven days was only so that he could figure out how he would get his words and to be able to say it when the time was right. Not to mourn with his brother. And then you get in verse 3, you have the basis of Bildad's argument. He asks, will God pervert justice? Eliphaz started his argument that God is holy and so separate from mankind that no one could be righteous. Well, Bildad starts his argument and says God is a just God. What's he implying? He's saying, Job, God is a just God. He wouldn't have let any of this happen to you unless you deserved it. If you didn't deserve it, God would be unjust. So therefore, you've done something to deserve it. God does not allow calamity to fall on the house of the righteous. You have bad things happen to you because you've done something bad. But then Bildad goes a little bit further and he cuts even deeper. And he carries the same cold logic to his children. And he says, look at your children. Their punishment is proof that they sinned. Be careful that the same does not happen to you. There's still time to repent. And then we get in verses 5 through 7 where Bildad says... If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. And though your beginning was small, 
your latter days will be very great. So this is Bildad's prescription for success. This is Bildad's uh, version and recipe for your best life now. You can see him just saying it over the campfire to Job with a $2,000 suit and a 50-cent smile, that life is really that simple. After all of this pain and sadness, well, get yourself right before God, and God will bless you. But, again, why is this Bildad's prescription for success? Because God is a just God. Well, you've done bad things, so God's punished you, but... If you get yourself right, get your spiritual life together, God is going to restore you. It would be unjust for him to not reward you for doing the things that you should be doing. So get it together, and God will restore you. God will bless you. God is gracious when we initiate with him. So come. Make yourself clean and upright, and be blessed. And then we get to verses 8 and 10. So you'd ask, build out the question, say, okay, well, that's, that's your opinion of what should happen. Upon what do you base your authority? And so then Bildad goes on even further, and he actually appeals to tradition. If you look at verses 8, eight through 10, he says, For inquire, please, of bygone ages, and consider what the fathers have searched out. For we are but of yesterday and know nothing, for our days on earth are a shadow. Will they not teach you and tell you and utter words out of their understanding? So in short, he's basically saying to Job, Look, I'm right. Go ahead and see. Is this not the tradition that has been handed down to us over the ages? Is your life and your experience enough to actually go against the collective wisdom of the ages? And then Bildad closes his argument with a, with a parable in chapters 11 through 19. A fear and guilt-stricken parable that basically tells Job, you're going to die and you're going to be destroyed if you forget God, so you better shape up. Oh, and by the way, if you return to him, you'll be blessed beyond your wildest imagination. Okay, so Bildad's argument in short. Job, God is a just God. All this has happened to you because you've done something wrong. Repent and make yourself upright and God will bless you. We know this because this has been handed down to us throughout history. What a simplistic way of viewing the world. Bildad is so deluded by his own self-assurance. And here's why. He appeals to history and he appeals to the tradition of the story that's been handed down. And we assume, and it's obvious, he's referring to the tradition of the scriptures, as the tradition of the Torah that's been handed down all through the generations. But the problem is, is he doesn't actually understand the deeper questions of the story that he claims to know. So he says, God will reward retributive theology is what we've said. It's just a short way of saying, you'll be blessed if you do good, you'll be punished if you do bad. That's what's been handed down through the Bible. And that's what Bildad claims is his authority, but he doesn't know his own scriptures. Think about Adam. The curse was, in the day that you eat of the tree, you will surely die. Adam eats of the tree and he doesn't die. Not for a long time. God clothes him and blesses him with children. Think about Abraham, and he says, if there's at least ten righteous people, would you spare the city and not destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? Yeah. If there's ten righteous people, then I will not destroy all of them. Think about Moses, the golden calf. Moses is on Sinai, and God says to Moses, I'm going to kill all of them and make a great nation out of you. And Moses says, don't 
do that because who will then praise you for your loving kindness and your patience and your long suffering? And God says, fine, I won't destroy them. Think about the psalmist. Think about Ecclesiastes asking these very questions. Why is it that the righteous suffer while the unrighteous prosper? And part of that, if you go back far enough, is that the deeper questions can be found in no greater place than in the name of God when he says, I am who I am. I will be who I will be. I will do what I want, when I want, how I want to do it. But that is not the God that Bildad knows. He has a God that he has put into such a small little box that Bildad, in his seat of thought, he's a grandfather of a pharisaical mind. A guy that thinks he has everything figured out has put God in a nice little box and can bring him out in a nice controlled environment whenever he wants. He's the type of guy that knows so much and lives in so much self-righteousness that he would step over somebody, a beggar on the street, because they deserved what they got, so why would I help him? Or in his prayers, he has self-righteous prayers that says, Thanks, thank God I'm not like this tax collector because I do all of these things. He's one who always finds uh, justification for his prejudice and justification for uh, thinking that he's uh, better than everyone else. So it's no, conf- it's no reason that um, when Jesus shows up and does something completely unexpected outside of their box, they kill him. Bildad would hate Jesus. And he's unwilling to learn, has everything figured out because he's studied the Father's. But the problem is is that he doesn't answer a single one of Job's questions. And then Job answers Bildad. Amidst all of Bildad's answers and self-assurance, Job continues to ask questions. He says in verse, uh, we'll look at verses 9, 1 through 4 real fast. Truly I know that it is so. So he's saying immediately, he's saying, Bildad, I know, yes, I, I do believe that God rewards the righteous and punishes the wicked. But... How can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? So if we just look at verse 2. Job starts his question by saying, How can a man be right before God? What's he asking? He's basically asking the question, how can a man's righteousness be recognized by God? Because I have been pure and I have been upright and I seem to be overlooked. It's not matching up anymore. What I was handed down doesn't work anymore. How can, I, how can God see me and not overlook me as a righteous man? And then we get to verse 3 where Job begins to express more of his heart and he says, if one wished to contend with him, Now, in essence, he is saying, I wish to contend with him. But that word contend is actually a legal term. It's used often in the Old Testament, as uh, especially in the prophets, where God prosecutes Israel. God contends with Israel. And in Job, it's reversed, where Job says, I want to contend with God. I want to put him on trial so that I will know the answers as to why. Because the wisdom of the ages no longer matches what's going on, and I have questions that only God can answer. I want to put him on the stand and make him testify. And that puts us on some pretty um, uncomfortable ground, does it not, that idea? But let's not flatten Job as just simply being irreverent here. Because verse 4, he goes on. 
And he says, He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? Job still has a profound theology of who God is. Even in his anger, it's still better than Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. He has one where he says, Yes, God is God. He's wiser. He's stronger. Even though I want to put him on trial, I could never hope to put him on trial because who could possibly imagine such success against God? He's far more powerful than me. He's far more uh, wise than me. And every single question I would throw at him, he'd take all of his questions and he'd throw back on me. So no matter how much I wanted to accuse him, in the end, he would be the one that was accusing me and I would not have answers to any of his questions. You see the, the nuance, the depth of Job's desire here. It's not just claiming God with wrong, but he's actually searching for answers. And it's far deeper than just um, the right and wrongness of God. It's actually wanting answers that only God can give. Answers to the deepest questions of his humanity. Job is wanting a conversation partner. He's wanting God to be a conversation partner where they can sit down and talk. But he's saying, no, that could never happen. I would know, there's no guarantee that I'd ever even be heard because he's God and who am I? And so if you think about it, he's holding his experience and his theology in tension. He's holding his experience which says, I want answers as to why all of this has happened to me. I want God to answer me and help me understand why I have been overlooked. And yet at the same time over here, he says, yeah, but he's God. He owes me no answers. What am I going to do? Wrestle him to the ground? If God doesn't want to answer me, he never will. And if I want to accuse him, he'll just accuse me back in ways that I could not answer. He's holding his experience and his theology in a profound tension. And I think we do the same thing all the time, do we not? Have you ever asked the question, God, why did you let this happen? Why won't you speak to me? Why will you not let me have this? Why did you take this thing away from me? We're doing the same thing Job is doing. We're wanting answers from God that only he can give and putting him on a small mini trial so that we might hear what he has to say. And yet, by virtue of the fact that we're actually asking him that question in the first place, we're taking our questions to him because he's God and he can do something about it. And we're wondering why he hasn't done something. Job is asking far deeper questions. And he wants God to be a conversation partner. But he knows that God owes him nothing. And this causes Job to sink into a tremendous despair. And chapter 9 is probably his low point in the entire book. And just to close out chapter 9, he recounts God's creative power and asks if all the cosmos and all the powers of the world yield to his authority, then how could I ever entertain the notion that God would be mindful of me? And Job in his suffering begins to see the suffering of the world and he doesn't like it. Eliphaz would say, oh, look at God. He thwarts the powers of the evil one. Oh, look at God. He delivers the poor and the oppressed. And Job just kind of says, really? In the last part of chapter 9, really? Is it that simple? That's just what God does? Is just going around fixing everybody's problems? Well, what about all these problems? What about the famines, the wars, the battles, the, the injustice that happens? Where's God then? And Job, in his suffering, sees the suffering around him with new eyes. And then he makes the worst claims about God in verses 21 to 24. He says that God 
brings calamity, and then laughs at the suffering of the innocent. He gives the world to be run by the wicked so that justice cannot be found. And he destroys the wicked and the righteous without discretion. And it doesn't matter if you do right or wrong. And Job says that there's really no point in the end anyways. Now, he says some harsh things about God. Probably some of the harshest things in the entire scriptures. Probably the toughest things to swallow. But he still goes to God in chapter 10. He doesn't stop searching and then move on. He continues to search. And where he was speaking to Bildad in verse in chapter 9, now in chapter 10, he turns his focus to God. And he takes all of his vexation and pours it out upon him. And he essentially asks two questions in chapter 10, just to summarize it briefly. Job asks two questions. The first, he says, God, what's in this for you? What's in all of this for you? Why are you allowing me to suffer? What do you have to gain from my suffering? Why did you bless me and take care of me all this time just to allow this to happen? How do you receive any sort of glory from this whatsoever? And then he asks another question. He says, why did you even create me? Why did you bring me from my mother's womb? And then Job feels as though God will never answer such questions. And he ends his statement in, verse, in chapter 10 by saying, I'd rather go and die and be in a place where you no longer work than be in this darkness where I know that you do. I'm tired and I'm ready to call it quits. So back to our question, how does Bildad envision approaching God? And how does Job envision approaching God? Look at chapter 9, verses 32 to 35. Job says, For he is not a man as I am that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. Let him take his rod away from me and let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him, for I am not so in myself. Job longs for an arbiter between him and God. That's how Job envisions approaching God. But for Bildad, Bildad needs no arbiter between him and God. All he needs, God is in a nice little box, and all you have to do is make yourself upright to get what you want. And so the question, uh, which gets to the question of why. Why does Bildad say that God is a God of justice and you just get yourself together? Let's just take a moment and just have Job ask Bildad some really hard questions who thinks he knows everything. So you ask Bildad, Bildad, did God, was God obligated to create me? No, he wasn't. God is not obligated to create anyone. He does everything out of his own free will. Okay, well, did God know that I would sin whenever he created me? Yes, of course he did. God knows all things. Well, did my sin take away from the glory of God whenever I sinned? No, of course not. God acted accordingly and exacted with justice. Okay, so whether I sin or whether I do good, in the end, God is glorified. Yes, of course he is. Okay, Bildad, why do either of it? Why do good or bad? And Bildad has to say, so that you'll be blessed. The only incentive for doing good is so that you'll be blessed. And the problem with that theology is that Bildad just presents a God that wants to be appeased, and he has no imagination for a God that wants to be known. He has no imagination that God, above all other gifts that he could give, actually wants to give himself you, or give you himself. 
And is that not exactly what Job is longing for? More of God in a profound way? If you think about it, that when his desire for an arbiter, he's literally saying, I wish that there would be somebody that would just put his hand on my shoulder and God's shoulder. Somebody that is powerful enough to take all of God's anger, all of God's wrath, all of his vexation, and all of his power, and all of his terribleness, and absorb it so that I can have God as a conversation partner. So that God will at least speak to me and give me answers to my questions. What a profound imagination Job has. And the thing is, he's wanting and imagining nothing more than Jesus. Is he not longing for that one who stands between us and God? Job wants an arbiter. But he gets one far better because Job wants access to God and a conversation partner with God. And yet Jesus comes along as a far better arbiter that doesn't just give us a conversation partner. He gives us a father. He gives us a father that wants to give himself to you. So how do we apply this idea to us? Well, let's just let the texts present the questions for us as we think about how to apply it to our own lives. Have you been like Bildad and just settled for a life of doing things that you think appease God? Or is your life actually characterized by a desire to know him? Think about that for a second. How easy is it to be just like Bildad, and I don't actually really need an arbiter, and I don't actually appreciate the arbiter that I have. Instead, I just go through the motions of my faith. I just have great attendance at church because I feel guilty when I don't. I read my Bible because I, I want to learn more. Or uh, I confess my sin on Sundays, but I have no real intention of actually turning away from my sin. I think we all do that to some degree, do we not? We just go through the motions of what we think will appease God and make him happy so that we don't feel guilty or we feel as though we still have this claim to eternal life. And that way of living falls so far short of what God wants to give you. Because you have an arbiter that has given you God himself. That is the very challenge of Job. And all of his vexation is that he wants more from God than he's ever gotten. And he asked the hard questions about his life. So as we ask the hard questions as well, do you actually understand, do you actually have a, well, do you have a desire to know God above all else? Is that what your faith leads you to? You see, this sermon series has been an invitation to swim into the deep end. It's not a requirement for salvation. It's just an invitation to understand God in far deeper ways than we ever have before. And this idea of having an arbiter is central. Because in that moment, we have to recognize that in Christ, God has given us himself. He has given you the most precious gift he possibly could. But we also, at that same time, still experience the same frustrations and vexations as Job, do we not? Suffering happens to us, pain has happened to us, and we can ask the deepest questions of our lives and go to God in a way that says, I want to know you. You are the author of my story, and I want to know you more. And we can begin to ask God why, not in a way that wants to hit him in the mouth, but in a way that wants more of him. Think about our theology for a second. If we believe that God is sovereign and he has written our stories, then he has written your pleasure and he has written your pain. Is it without purpose or is it with purpose? 
we can begin to go to him and ask those questions to say, God, why did you give me an alcoholic father? Why did my parents abandon me? Why was I ignored my entire life? Why did you take that person from me? Why did you allow this to happen to me? Because if we don't have answers, if God doesn't have answers for our pain, then is he really God? But yet we believe that we do have a God that is in control over all things, and Jesus, our arbiter, has given us access to him so that we can recognize that there is a whirlwind inside of us that God draws us to. To ask deeper questions about life, and not just to go through the motions, but to say, I used to just hear of you, but now I have seen you. I've seen you in my own story, and I've pleaded and wrestled with you, and you have been gracious to me. And I have realized that over all of that, you have written my story above all else with love. That's a deep end question. But to travel to that whirlwind, you have to have faith that it's worth it. And you have to have faith that it's really God that loves you, that has written his story for you. And it's that Jesus, that our great arbiter, that will lead us there to help us sit down with the Father face to face and say our deepest questions to him and allow him to give us the answers. We're invited into the deep end. Are you willing to go? Let's pray. Jesus, help us to recognize that you certainly cleanse us of our sin and our unrighteousness. And because you are righteous and we are united to you, we are righteous. And because you have taken away our sin and made us clean and pure. And because you have given us eternal life. And all the other things that you give us, help us to see that it's for the purpose of knowing you and knowing our Father. We look forward to the days in heaven when we can sit and spend eternity understanding the depths and majesty and power of our God. Help us to be people that swim in the deep end, that recognize that the brokenness of this world <laughs> Only you can provide the answers. Only you can provide the wisdom that is needed. Help us to be willing to mourn. Help us not to be Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. But help us to be willing to sit like Job and wait and knock and knock and knock until you answer. Help us to understand that you are good when it doesn't seem like you are. Pray for those who are suffering and struggling. Give them the strength to continue to ask questions, even though it doesn't sound perfectly or they're afraid that they won't be theologically correct. Just give them the strength to give you what they have and to ask you to reveal yourself to them. Help us to be a church that swims in the deep end. We ask all these things with one voice. And everybody said, Amen.